0: Amen. Thank you. Does anybody know where Eugene, Oregon is? Anybody been there? Oh, we got some hands. Let's talk later. Because, you know, seven months ago, I didn't know where Boone, Iowa was. Um, Surprising. I didn't even know where Iowa was. Uh, And I had been there before. I still didn't know quite where to place it. But yeah, Oregon's over there on the west coast. I was actually born and raised there. And it's been, it's been a Quite a transition, moving out here. I was actually going to share a few surprises I had about moving out to Iowa. Uh, one is that it 's actually beautiful i don 't know if you guys think it is, but I do because i didn 't hear that it would be, but it actually isn and, and did you guys know that uh, actually the name Iowa means beautiful. Who knew that a little Iowa trivia one one meet two guys, three of us, three new so Iowa 's great we uh, we live over in North Ames by Ada Hayden uh, Lake, and so we we go on bike rides, and it's just a really beautiful place. That was a surprise to us. Also, the cornfields, like, I I keep hearing people say knee-high by 4th of July, but that was on Tuesday, and they're, like, taller than me, so I don't know what happened this year. Is that, someone who grows corn can explain that to me later, because I don't get it quite yet. The other thing that was a little surprising to me was uh, the fireflies, I guess that's, that's normal here um, in Oregon. Not nor- I'd never seen a firefly in my entire life until I went in my backyard like a couple months ago. I'm like, what is that flashing neon thing in my backyard? <laughs> and I had some friends over a few weeks ago, and they said, well, if you really want to be a true Iowan, you, you get it, smash it, and then smear it on yourself. <laughs> so I did that. <laughs> I did. It was interesting. Uh, The, you know, the bunnies everywhere. In Oregon, we have squirrels everywhere. And here, there's just bunnies. And my son loves that, but that's really new for us. And then the whole tornado siren thing, not, that is not West Coast-ish. And so, when you guys have friends who move here, can you just tell them that ahead of time so they know? The first time it went off, my, I was at work. My wife was home with the kids. You know, it's like a clear, sunny day. <clears throat> and so she hears the She wakes the kids up from naps, runs them downstairs into the basement, and get them away from the tornado. You guys got to let us know that there's like the practice runs, you know, once a month. <sighs> so... Overall, the transition is going really well. We love Iowa. We have a great church community. We're in a really cool neighborhood, and we love it. L- let me tell you a little bit about my life in Oregon. I was born and raised in Eugene, Oregon, and grew up in a family where my, both of my parents were believers, and actually my uncle was a seminary professor, and my grandpa was a Pentecostal preacher, and so I kind of had a lot of spiritual influence in my life growing up. And I would say that for most of my life, from about age four, when I first, you know, kind of started confessing Jesus as Savior, I didn't know everything, but I knew enough that I need forgiveness, I need Jesus. So from age four to about age 20, I would describe it this way, you know, people sometimes talk about the difference between a ham and eggs breakfast, you know, the, uh, the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. Just let it, let it sink in. I know there's a lot of hogs out here too, so just let that sink in a little bit. My... My life from age four to 20 was involved with Jesus, but not committed. It wasn't quite like a death to self kind of thing. And so it was at age 20 where I was just confronted with my sinfulness, my brokenness. And and that's not to say that it was the first time I became a believer, but I will say this it's the time when the gospel became beautiful to me. I was a sophomore at the University of Oregon. You know, I was in a relationship that was heading in the wrong direction. I was really idolizing school and sports. Um, my brother, who had been—I have a twin brother, and so we had, like, lived together, best friends all the time, seeing each other. And he just started dating his soon-to-be wife. And so my life changed drastically in that spring of 2005 when when all that stuff was happening. And God did something in my life that was really amazing, and it's going to sound kind of simple, but he— Ultimately, I was challenged to start memorizing scripture, and I had this job as a lifeguard, and in May, in Oregon, at the pool, it's rainy, and so there were no lives to guard. So first day, I just bring, basically bring my Bible up into the lifeguard stand. I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that, but I did it, and started memorizing scripture, and it was actually really, like, comforting. I felt like God was speaking to me through it, and so I made this commitment right there that day. That I would memorize 500 verses by the end of the summer. Now, the number doesn't matter. I'm just saying that's what happened. I did the math in my head. and I was like, I think if I do this amount each day for the next 100 days, I could actually do this. And so, long story short, I did. And, and God can get a hold of people's hearts in a lot of different ways. I've seen that now in, you know, several years of ministry. God can transform people in a lot of different ways. But for me, he did it by this kind of simple but difficult task of memorizing 500 verses, and through that, God radically transformed the way I saw myself, saw the world around me, saw my relationships, and saw really my future and my eternity, and so from the summer of 2005, I, I began to pursue a, um, basically a direction toward vocational ministry, that someday I would be a pastor, preacher, and so I finished my degree in accounting at the University of Oregon, worked in accounting for a year, and then went to seminary, my second year of seminary uh, in Portland, Oregon, Western Seminary. Um, That's where my uncle was a professor, by the way. Um, So I lived with him, and I went on this uh, Israel trip, a three-week study tour to Israel. And the first day, I saw this girl, and I thought she was Israeli because she had dark hair, dark skin. I just figured we're in Israel. She doesn't look like me, probably Israeli. Um, She's sitting right over here. It's my wife. And uh, I just skipped a bunch of details. Let me back up a little bit. Um, so I went and started talking to her, realized she had this southern accent, like, you're not Israeli. And so for the next three weeks, the next three weeks, she couldn't stop following me around. And so we started dating, and then a year later, we got married. And we have three kids. We have Georgia, who is one. And then we have Israel, <clears throat> named because that's where we met. He's three. And then we have Crystal, who's 23. And she is someone we met uh, when she was 17. We were doing college ministry six years ago in Eugene, Oregon, and she came through our ministry. She was in foster care at that point and aged out at age 18. She started living with us off and on throughout her college career. And then when she graduated, we had the conversation with her saying, hey, would you like to come into our family legally, and I didn't even know at that point, I didn't know that adult adoption was a thing, but it is a thing, and it's actually, it's easier than a normal adoption just because the paperwork, is just because she's an adult, she can sign for herself, and those sorts of things, so that happened two years ago, and so we're figuring out what family looks like in a really non-traditional environment, but we felt like God was calling us to that, and so that's just a little bit about my family, and so for the last six years, we've been doing college ministry in Eugene, a ministry called The Good Fight, connected to University Fellowship Church, And then back in November, uh, it's a long story, I'll make it short. I got connected with Mark Vance, who is the director of Salt Company in Ames. And basically, he invited me to come visit, then offered me a job. And so after about a month of praying and talking and thinking and stressing and all that stuff, we decided, yeah, this is actually, this is for us. God is calling us to the cornfields of Iowa, and we did not see it coming eight months ago, but here we are, and we actually really love it. So we're excited to be here, um, and just in Iowa in general, and actually excited to be here right now, today. So let's turn toward Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish up chapter 3 and get into chapter 4 today. So I'll give you a second to turn there if you're not there already. Galatians chapter 3 and 4, we're going to do verses 23 through chapter 4 Verse seven. Now, just just to set the context a little bit of what's going on in Galatians. I know you guys have been in it for what is it? Six weeks now? A couple months almost? Um, There's a lot of things that are being said. A A couple ways to summarize what's been said so far, at least in chapter three, is that the law is a great teacher but a terrible savior. I hope that's clear this far in the book of Galatians. The law is a great teacher; it has its purposes. Really important purposes. Show us our sin. Show us our need for a Savior. It's a terrible Savior. To rely on the works of the law is a curse. And in fact, speaking of that curse, the blessed one, this is what we see in verses 13 of chapter 3, the blessed one, Jesus, became the cursed one so that cursed ones like us could become blessed. That's where we've come so far in chapter 3. Law is a great teacher and a terrible Savior, the blessed one became the cursed one, so the cursed ones could become blessed. And so here, we're going to talk through a little more of what exactly those blessings are that we have in Christ. So what I'm going to do is read the whole thing, and then we'll go back through it and kind of go verse by verse or thought by thought. So here's, here's what it says, 14 verses, Galatians three twenty-three to 4, 7. It says, Now, before faith came... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I want to start back with the first couple of verses there. Verse 23 and 24. There's a couple analogies that... Paul is using to tell us about how we relate to him and, and how we relate to his law. The first, it says that the law is like a prison guard to us, and secondly, it's like a tutor. Now, the, the, it could also be translated as guardian, but it's some, the, the idea behind guardian or tutor here, it's something like a mix of a teacher, tutor, butler kind of thing. It was, it was a unique ancient role where um, a, a household or a family would have a person— who would function like, you know, something like more than a nanny, um, but also a teacher. And that's this idea. And so the law is doing two things for us before Christ. Before we see our, uh, before we come to Christ, the law is doing two things for us. One, it's like a prison guard. Two, it's like a tutor. So the prison guard things means it's showing us that we are locked up by our sin. It's showing us we have a problem. And then by the tutor, it's teaching us what to do about that. Now to even further understand, I'm going to try to explain these analogies by, by giving another analogy. Okay, so the law is like a mirror and it's like a compass. So here's how it's like a mirror. My parents own like a part of a beach house over on the Oregon coast. And there's this one mirror in the house. And all my siblings, we joke about this because this mirror is so exposing. I don't know if it's just the size of it or the way the sun hits it or that it's always kept clean. But if you want to just see everything that's wrong with your face, just go up close to it. You know, if you've got the five o'clock shadow coming in, you'll see it. If there's some sort of blemish on your face, you're going to see it. If there's leftover dinner on your face, you're going to see it. Sorry, that's kind of gross. But you're, it's just, there's something about this mirror that it exposes you. It shows you who you really are. That's what the law of God does for us. It's a mirror that exposes us, even in our ugliness, especially in our ugliness. And so when, the, when it says that the law is like a prison guard, it's, it's also kind of saying, it's like, um, it's like a mirror. It's showing us that we have a problem. But it's not just a mirror, okay? It's also a compass it's also a tutor okay so here, here's another analogy so we're thinking about compass if I just let's say you don't have your iPhones or anything don't have smartphones and I just handed out compasses right now you'd be like well not super helpful don't need a compass Boone's not that huge I can probably find my way home don't need a compass well let's say you're in some 50,000 acre cornfield down in South Iowa and it's dusk and the bugs are coming out fireflies and everything And you're not sure which way to go. And you don't have your phone. And now I give you a compass. Well, now it's a little more helpful. It's a little more helpful to have a compass when you realize a kind of predicament that you're in. And so that's what the law does for us. It shows us, like a prison guard says, you have a problem. And then like a tutor, it says, but here's the way out. The law is both a mirror and a compass. And it's interesting because in Galatia, the thing that's going on here, the, the, what's really shocking about the indictment against the Galatians is that he, Paul isn't necessarily going after the really, really bad people. The criminals, the racists, the deadbeat dads. He's not, he's not primarily going after them. He's going after good people. He's going after good people who think they're good enough for God. And he's saying, no, that's, that's not the purpose of the law to make you think that somehow you can jump over this bar that God has set for you. The bar is too high. It's not meant for us to say, oh, look, there's how good I'm supposed to be. I guess I can get over that. No, the law, it is so high and so hard that we realize, like Amir, we realize I I have a problem and I need help out of this. The law itself condemns the use of the law as a way of justifying ourselves before God. And so the the law is both a tutor, and a prison guard. It is showing us what's wrong with us. It's also showing us the way out. It's showing us toward Christ. The law is a tutor or a guardian to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Look at verse 25 now. It says, but now that faith has come, now it's a little interesting Here it says now that, but now that faith has come, wasn't Abraham justified by faith? Is faith like a new thing? Well, no, yeah, there's a lot of, Old Testament people who were justified by faith. So when he's saying faith has come, he's referring to the gospel events. Now that, I mean, he even uses it back in verse 24, saying, as Christ came. So it's using synonymously with faith comes, that means Christ comes. I mean, the gospel events have happened, and this Justification by faith, this message is being spread everywhere. It's not that faith was never there at all. It's that it's being spread now in a new way. A new age of redemptive history has started with the appearing of Christ. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. So now that Christ has come, we no longer should be looking at the law as something we can accomplish on our own. Now here's how we can take this too far, okay? Okay salvation is by grace through faith. I'm sure you hear that every week here, and that's awesome because we all need to be reminded of it every single week, okay? So there's, there's a ditch on either side of the road here, though, because the one ditch says, well, maybe I can be good enough to uh, please God and make him accept me if, if I obey the law. Here's the other ditch, though. When you see that you're accepted by grace, you completely throw out the law, but that's not all the way true either it says that we're no longer under the law. It doesn't say that we no longer have any relationship at all to the law. In the same way that if as a tutor is teaching you, let's say you have a teacher and he or she is teaching you things and you're learning and then someday you graduate. Now, does that mean you like consciously forget everything that teacher taught you and have no more relationship at all with that teacher? It means no, but you don't completely reject that teacher, but your relationship has changed. You're no longer under that teacher, but some of the values that they taught you, the things they they showed to you, you've internalized, and so now it's part of who you are. So even though as Christians we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, or the condemnation that comes because we can't fulfill it, it doesn't mean that the law has no use for us. The law is an expression of God's character and what pleases him and so we still listen to the law we study it we seek to obey it not because we think it's going to get us right with God but because it's pleasing to God and it's been internalized into who we are and look at verse 26 it says for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith I want to say we're going to talk about adoption in just a few minutes here in chapter four but I want to say a few quick things about sonship the first one is this It's not universal. It's not for everybody. Now, there's a sense in which every human being on this earth is created by God, an image bearer. Sons and daughters, although when the Bible uses the words sons and daughters, it doesn't refer to it in that way. Sons and daughters are for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's a really, it's, It's not a universal reality that everyone is a son and daughter. You know, Tim Keller says it like this. He says that Christianity is the most inclusive, exclusive religion there is. Completely inclusive. Come as you are. Come as you are. But also very exclusive. You come through Christ. There's one way, one door, one hope, one life. So it's the most inclusive, exclusive religion there is. So it's not universal. Sonship is not universal. Sonship is a present reality. We pray it a lot, our Father in heaven. We don't pray our someday Father in heaven, or our Father if I'm good enough in heaven. It's a present reality, a present possession, our Father in heaven. So, sonship, it's not universal. It is a present reality. And here's the thing that might seem a little confusing at first, but this is actually radically pro-women. Now, in a culture of our day, that might not sound like it, but if you—here's what happens. Too quickly, we try to—we read this, and we say, okay, all, all sons—well, we could also translate that sons and daughters. Well, yes, you can, but you lose a little something. You see, in that culture— It was only the son and really only the firstborn son who was the heir of the father. And so what he's saying, he's saying to the whole church in Galatia, you're all sons. You're all heirs. And so it's actually a very pro-women kind of statement to say that you're going to have the same kind of, in God's family, you're going to have the same kind of inheritance that a firstborn would in a family that's in your community. So it's a very pro-women statement for him to refer to all of us, men and women, as sons. You know, it's similar to, in like Ephesians 5, where we're referred to as the bride of Christ. Both men and women referred as the bride. Now, it would be a bad translation to say, well, it's we're both the bride and the husband. It's just we're the spouse. But you, you lose something in the analogy when you do that. In the same way that you lose something in this analogy if you just quickly go to sons and daughters. No, we're sons. And what that means in that culture is what God was trying to communicate through Paul. We are heirs. All that belongs to God belongs to us. Look at verse 27 now. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And now 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor nor female. The gospel reminds us that we're all equal in Jesus. This is not saying that there's no distinctions at all. He's not saying that slave and free are exactly the same in every way, or that Jews and Greeks are exactly the same in every way, or males and females exactly the same in every way. He's saying, no, there are distinctions, but there is no superiority and inferiority. We are equal in value in God's sight. And so he's going after the cultural barriers, Greek and Jew. He goes after the class barriers, slave and free. And then he goes, goes after the gender barriers. B- barriers. Now, it's, it's important for us to remember that the whole men and women being equal is not a feminist idea. That's a biblical idea. It's from the start. That's a biblical idea. It's not that Christians stole that from feminists. We believe that men and women are created equal. Equal does not mean the same. Different strengths, different gifts, different tasks, different abilities, but equal in God's sight. And look look also what it says. We are one in Christ Jesus. So we are one with Christ. We're clothed with him, covered in his righteousness. We're also one in Christ. A gospel-focused community is a unified community, and a unified community is a strong community. A gospel-focused community is a unified community, and a unified community is a strong community. Here's why. When we realize that all we have is because of grace, there's no room for pride. How can I look down on you? When ev- I know that everything I have is from God because of grace. So that removes pride. But there's another side of that too. Not only that, but also it, it gets rid of jealousy because how can I be jealous of you? When y- You might have a lot of things going for you, but I have all things in Christ. I am an heir of the creator of this world. Everything belongs to me. And so realizing this gospel focus, it removes pride when we realize that all we have is because of grace, and it removes jealousy when we realize that we have all because of grace. Look now at verse four, I mean chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read this analogy again because it's a little tricky, and then I'll try to explain it simply. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So this analogy is a little complicated because the way he uses the word child in verse 3 is different than the way he uses the word child in verse 5. So we can get lost in this analogy if we think that he's talking about believers the whole time. What he's actually talking about, he says, in the same way that an heir doesn't have access to his father's riches until adulthood— That's true. So also a non-Christian or pre-Christian does not have access to God's riches until he believes the gospel. So it's tricky because the word, the idea of child is being used in two different ways. It's being used as both an illustration and an application, so it's complicated. But the big idea here is saying this. In the same way that an heir doesn't have full access to his father's riches before adulthood, so also a person does not have full access to God's riches until he believes. Until he believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, this is also, this is indirectly a warning, because it means that if you're not yet believing in Christ by faith, you're enslaved. Enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, which basically means you're enslaved to the religion of earning. It's, it's built into us from infancy. You do good, we'll be good to you. You do bad, you're going to get bad in return. It's really natural for us to try to relate to God through works. I do good, you be good to me. If I do bad, I'll expect bad. That's the elementary principles of this world. And it's enslaving. Because as we said earlier... None of us can be good enough for God. We're simply not good enough. We're not even close. Even our good works are filthy rags before God. You know, one of the most repeated commands in all of scripture is don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear. Fear not. Fear not. Don't fear. And that's that's true if you're a son if you're a slave, if you're still trying to get right with God by your own morality, that command is not for you because, in fact, you should fear. It's a warning to be living in slavery to the elemental principles of this world, be trying to—I mean, you're living under the Galatian curse, the curse that good people are thinking they're good enough for God. Don't fear is not something God says to everyone. Some people should be afraid. Some people should be afraid. Look at verse 4. Here's the good news, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's a lot of speculation about what it means for the time to have fully come. Is that because the Roman roads were in place or whatever? It it doesn't say. We just know that God said, now. Now's the time for my son to come and redeem the world. What does it mean to redeem? It means to pay the price of a slave so as to set that slave free. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the price, the full price, to the law. The slave master was the law. Jesus paid the price of the law. By living it out perfectly, he was able to pay the price for us to redeem us. In Jesus, our judgment day was moved from future to past on the cross. But I want to show you something else that it says here. It says, To redeem those who are under the law. Yes, incredible. Good news. And that's what we've been talking about all throughout Galatians, but there's a little more. There's a lot more. So that we might receive adoption as sons. So it's not just redemption, it's not just setting us free. And just letting us go and do our own thing. It's setting us free for a purpose. Setting us free toward God. I want to tell you three reasons why adoption is beautiful. I told you that it was in, in college for me that the gospel became beautiful to me. And it's an incredible thing to see just how beautiful the gospel is. And adoption is one of those concepts in scripture that truly is beautiful. when we wrap our minds around it. So here's the first reason why adoption is beautiful. Because it's received, Not achieved. See what it says there—that we might receive adoption as sons. This isn't because we were cute and irresistible, and really pretty, and God's like, man, just like a cute little puppy or something. I just—I gotta have it. That's not how it was. One of the most powerful scenes in a movie over the last few years, I think—I could be wrong—is in *The Hunger Games*. I volunteer as tribute. You guys know what I'm talking about. Katniss Everdeen. Well, first it's Primrose, her her little sister, gets called to fight in in the battle, basically a battle to death. And so her older sister, Katniss Everdeen, volunteers herself to go in her place because Primrose is like the greatest little sister and Katniss doesn't want to see her get hurt. That is a beautiful picture. But it doesn't quite capture the ugliness that we have when God adopts us. An even more accurate gospel picture would be if Katniss Everdeen did that to save the evil dictators living over in the capital city. That's, that's hard for us to process. Why would she do that? The evil dictators, they, they just deserve death. We can see it with Primrose, pretty little girl, with the evil dictator. That's more of what the gospel is like for us. That's what adoption is like. God doesn't bring us into his family because we deserve it or we achieved it or we're beautiful or pretty or good or any of those things. We didn't earn it. It's something to be received, not achieved. And that's what makes the gospel so beautiful. So, what makes adoption beautiful? One, it's received, not achieved. Number two, it's righteousness and not just innocence. If you have $100,000 of debt and I say, well, I'm going to pay it off for you, that's a nice deed. It's really nice. But the gospel goes further. Not only is your infinite debt paid for, but you actually have infinite riches credited to you. You're heirs of God. All that belongs to God, infinite wealth, is yours in Christ because you are heirs. Not only did Christ remove the curse that we deserved, he also gives to us the blessing that he earned. So adoption is beautiful because it's received, not achieved. It's righteousness and not just innocence. And it's relational, not just legal. So much of the book of Galatians is about justification. And that's awesome because justification is really, it's the heartbeat of the gospel justified by faith, not by works. But the difference between justification and adoption is the difference between a courtroom and a family room. You know what I'm talking about? It's one thing when things happen in a courtroom. It's true, and it's meaningful, but it's a really different conversation when not just is this like a legal court matter that God did for us. It is that, but it's more than that. It's that we're welcomed into his family. We're not just saved by God, we're also saved to Him. The gospel is not just information to be learned, but it's also a person, or even more specifically, a father to be experienced and loved. In Genesis, God goes to Abraham. He's like, Abraham, I'm your shield, your very great reward. You know what Abraham says next? He's like, okay, but what will you give me? He missed it. He missed that He he understood, at least partially, this idea of of justification, but it's also adoption. He's being brought into the family. It's not just saved by God. It's saved to him, that God himself is the treasure. God is the source of all and infinite riches. Go with me now to verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so what the son did for us was objective and legal, bringing us us into God's family. These are things that are true, although we might not initially feel them. But God does something else for us. He sends his spirit into our hearts. And when God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in your hearts, you say things like, Abba, Father. Why would Paul used the word Abba there. It's an Aramaic word. He's speaking to a Gentile community. Why would he do that? That's the word that Jesus used for God. It's telling us something. It's telling us the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the Father is the kind of relationship that you get to have with the Father as well. The word Abba can be also be translated like Papa or Daddy. It's a very intimate name for God the Father. That's the kind of relationship we can have. Yes, it's a legal thing. Yes, it's an adoption, and it's even within us. It's a subjective thing that we can feel, that God is truly our Father. Last verse, verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, that's good news, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. There are no commands in this scripture. These 14 verses, there's no do's or don'ts. And so what we need to do is see what what is Paul reminding us of and how can we continue to remind ourselves of these things. This is not a go and do kind of passage. This is a done kind of passage. These are things that are already true about you in Christ. And so as we leave this place today, there's a couple things I want you to, to let roll around in your mind all week. One is that I want God's voice to be the loudest voice in your mind. That what He says about you is more true than what you say about you. It's more true than what your kids or your spouse or your parents say about you. More true than what your boss says about you or your coworkers or friends or community members. What God says about you is most true. You're loved. You're adopted. You're an heir. It is so important that we see ourselves the way God sees us. Who we are is not determined by what we do. Who we are is determined by whose we are, and we belong to God, and that's good news. We are his family. We're his children. We're his sons. When you're looking to find your identity, please don't don't look out around you. What do other people say about me? Don't even look in. It's like, what do I feel about myself? Look up. Look up to your father who knows you and loves you. You have to give up a lot to follow Jesus, but you have to give up a lot more to not follow him. Let's pray together. Father, help us to live today not dependent (coughs) on anybody's approval not devastated by anybody's criticism. Free us to love as you love us. Haunt us with our inability to be good enough on our own. Lord, and continually remind us of who we are in Christ. Sons, heirs, clothed with Christ, accepted, adopted, loved, cherished. God, I pray that you would break the hard hearts in this room, and for the hearts that feel broken, Lord, you'd mend them together with your love. Lord, teach us to be sensitive to your Spirit. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us never forget all of the blessings we have, because you bore the curse for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.